From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. It was another challenging year for the Roman Catholic Church in Rhode Island. In July, the Providence Diocese published a list of dozens of priests who'd been credibly accused of sexual abuse since 1950, refocusing attention on a scandal that's consumed the church for years. And ahead of a visit last month to confer with Pope Francis, diocesan leaders published startling new statistics showing a huge drop-off in mass attendance since the year 2000. What did the Holy Father advise and what will 2020 hold for Rhode Island most influential religious institution. This week on Newsmakers, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Providence, Thomas Tobin. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Joining me on the program, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Bishop Thomas Tobin, it's good to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas to you and to my friends at home. Sorry for my voice. It's that time of year, so uh, dulcet tones of Tim White here. Um, <laughs> so, Bishop, every few years, uh, bishops are required to make a trip to, to Rome uh, called Ad Limina. In November, you did that and met with Pope Francis. I was curious if this was the first time you've met him in person. Yes, it is the first time I've met Pope Francis in person. Um, it was my it was my fifth ad limina visit. Uh, once as an auxiliary bishop in Pittsburgh, and twice from Youngstown. Now the second time from Providence. So it was a wonderful trip, but it was my first um, opportunity to meet and greet uh, Pope Francis in person. What were your impressions of him? What was he like? Very impressive. You know, we. Um, had a wonderful opportunity, and we met as a group of bishops with with the Holy Father. There were twenty some of us, I believe, um, and we met in a group in a discussion with him in the Apostolic Palace for uh, over two hours. So it was an amazing opportunity, and um, the impressions were very positive, very strong. Gosh, he was he was relaxed. He was very humble, he was very humane. He just entered into a good conversation, um, as he said, with his brother bishops, with his fellow bishops. So, and he was very clear at the very beginning. He said, I don't have a speech to give. I don't have an agenda to follow today. He said, this is your opportunity. He said, whatever you want to ask about, questions, uh, issues, if you want to criticize the Pope, that's okay too, yeah. he said, because we learn when we are criticized as long as it's done respectfully. Well, was there a main theme <coughs> that came out of that from the bishops to the Pope then? It was all over the place, and actually we just had a chance if we wanted to say something or ask something, put up our hands, and then he had a translator with him because he was speaking in Italian, mm -hmm. and then the translator was going back and forth from Italian to English, but it was all over the place. We spoke about um, uh, immigration, we spoke about evangelization, we talked about some liturgical questions. Uh, so it was uh, just about uh, almost everything that's a current issue in the church today um, came up in the discussion, including some more more personal things. Uh, one of the bishops reflected upon the year of mercy that Pope Francis instituted a couple years ago and what a wonderful impact that had in, in his particular diocese, especially with confessions and sacrament of reconciliation. The one question I asked of the Pope, I said, Holy Father, not too many years ago, uh, you were in our position. You were sitting on this side of the desk visiting another Pope with your ad a visit from Argentina. I said, what was that like for you, and what should we expect from our ad limina visit? So it was a chance for him to reflect a little bit on his experience as a diocesan bishop as well. Did you feel uh, the bishops, uh, and maybe not just in this visit, but in previous ad liminas you've done, are they, are they candid with the Pope, or is it kind of like, you know, when your boss calls you in for <laughs> how are we doing, and you say, oh, everything's great, even though you know there's griping behind the scenes? Sure. I think the bishops were very candid. Um, 
Now again, it's it's uh, somewhat of a limited conversation because you're not one on one with him, you know, in a conference setting for two hours. It's a group discussion, so you have to respond to the other bishops and listen to them as well. But I think the bishops felt very candid, and apparently some of the uh, ad limina visits after hours, and we were the first in the country from New England. They've had five or six, I think, since then. Some of the other um, bishops have also been very candid in asking specific questions and so forth. But yeah, I think the bishops felt very comfortable and the Pope did everything he could to welcome us and to make us feel comfortable and just to enter into that kind of conversation. You didn't get a sense at all that the Pope is some kind of ideologue that sometimes he's portrayed as in, in Catholic culture or in common uh, culture today in the media. but. Um, uh, you get you get a sense this man has very deep convictions, but he's very comfortable with those. He doesn't want to fight with people. He doesn't want to challenge people in a negative sense. Um, just a man who's very comfortable in his own skin and deeply believes what he believes and wants to share that vision with others. Um, you, you, it was a whole week of visits. The Pope, I'm sure, was a highlight, but you were in Vatican office. You, there were masses, of course, but then you were in Vatican offices talking to different officials. Um, I'm curious, outside of the visit with the Pope, what was the most interesting thing you heard or learned or something that might have changed your opinion about how things are working at the Vatican or what they're looking for? Well, great question. First of all, um, I need to emphasize that the ad limina is, has both administrative aspects and spiritual aspects. So the spiritual part of it was wonderful. I mean, we had an opportunity, all the bishops, to celebrate Mass at the major basilicas of Rome, which are fantastic, spectacular buildings to begin with, but their architecture and their art and history, just a beautiful, beautiful spiritual setting. So the spiritual part of it, I had an opportunity just by myself one afternoon to walk through St. Peter's Basilica, even though it was packed with tens of thousands of tourists, and St. Peter's can hold that many people. I had an opportunity just by myself to walk through St. Peter's, which was a splendid opportunity, and I, I visited some of the uh, shrines that were important for me. I went to the Pieta Shrine, and then to the shrine where uh, Pope John Paul II is buried, then some time in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel. I had an opportunity to spend some time praying personally in the in the chapel at the Domus Santa Marta where we were staying, where the Pope lives, a nice opportunity. So um, from a spiritual point of view, it was like a retreat. It was a wonderful opportunity to reflect on God's goodness and my own ministry and what I'm trying to do and the challenges and just to express that sense of gratitude for how good God has been. But there were other excellent meetings too from an administrative point of view, the other uh, dicasteries, as they call them, the other offices of the Vatican. Again, across the board, almost every possible topic you can think about in the church today, uh, we, we covered in these various meetings. I want to bring the conversation back to Rhode Island, and uh, <coughs> we have to uh, hit up some sensitive topic here, topics here. And first, I want to focus in on Bristol. The Boston Globe's Amanda Malkovitz <coughs> revealed a long-running sex abuse scandal in Bristol, and it did reach to St. Mary's uh, there, where the accused David Barboza was an administrator. Father Barry Gamache initially told the Globe he had uh, never been warned, but church records uh, tell a different story, and you were also aware of the investigations there. I guess my question is, and I think a lot of people in Bristol had the same thing, is why didn't the church take action? Mm -hmm. I can't say too much about that because, frankly, I don't remember all the details. I didn't review that file coming in here today, so I don't remember all the details. It was a long and difficult story, as you know. It goes back decades in the town, 
in the city with different departments and so forth. And yes, this gentleman was involved in the, the church for a number of years. I don't remember all the details. Um, I, can't, I can't say this. I was there for Mass on Thanksgiving morning at St. Mary's. And um, Father Barry is doing a great job. He's well received. He's beloved. And the people are fine. I mean, they're doing very well. It's a beautiful parish. And um, whatever's happening in the town, it's somewhat beyond the, uh, the scope of the church at this point, as I understand it. But again, I don't want to say too much because I don't remember all the details. I well, don't want to misspeak. Just uh, you know, <coughs> your categorization. I, I don't know that everyone is fine in Bristol. Do you feel? Well, I was speaking about my experience at the parish that morning. Okay. There was no difficulty, no problems at that point. And I know it's tough to talk about it because there could be litigation, you know, and everything. But fundamentally, do you feel like the church owes that community an apology? Well, I think any time there's there's uh, an expression or some act of sexual abuse, we want to apologize for that and be very sorry for whatever part we may have played in. Now, again, as I recall, most of that situation involved other people in the town, not people in the church, not the pastor certainly, and not other people in the church itself. My question as is to I the churches, it. to the church's role in that. There, it was obviously yeah. more widespread. Yeah. I, again, I don't, don't remember all the details of that, so I'm hesitant to say too much about that. But anytime there's some uh, act of sexual abuse that any way that some someone in the church, priest or or educator or anyone else in the church is involved in some form of misconduct. Yes, of course, we want to apologize for that and, and say that we're sorry for whatever role we may have had. On the same topic, Brian <coughs> Amaral of the Province Journal recently reported one of the priests on the credibly accused list is suing the diocese for defaming him, he argues, alleges. Uh, basically argues he was not given a real chance to defend himself before that list was put out. Uh, do you have any regrets about, you know, were those men given a chance to, to provide, you know, other evidence before their names are put out there and we're seen as, you know, people, tar you know, a scarlet letter. Sure. Again, I'm hesitant to speak about any individual on the list. Um, the list was published for a couple of reasons, as I said in my uh, cover letter at the time, we've said many times since then. First of all, because I think there was a general societal expectation that the list be published. Um, I think 80% of the dioceses in the country have uh, published their list, I believe, mm -hmm. something like that, and that may have changed since then. So there was a general expectation that we would do so. Um, and secondly, we did so because people had the right to know what the history of sexual abuse has been in this diocese. So we went back, I think, uh, to 1950, I believe, I forget the exact number, but uh, we reviewed our files for a number of years, for a good number of years, and uh, shared what we had in terms of credible allegations. As I said previously, and I think said it here last year, I believe, uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't expect many surprises on that list. There were some, I think, that were not as well known as others, or perhaps not known at all, except uh, uh, within the files of the church. But we published the list for that sense of uh, accountability and, and transparency. So uh, I think all of the individuals, or most of the individuals on the list, were certainly aware that the list was coming. I think they knew that their names would be on the list because they had been previously publicized. Uh, that's why there weren't many surprises at all. So you're comfortable that the people on those lists, it was the way it was handled and that, you know, they were given a chance or, you I'm know. I'm very comfortable with the way the list was handled. It's, it's never perfect, of course, and it's a difficult exercise for everybody. It's a difficult exercise for uh, the alleged um, perpetrators. 
to have their names out there again. It's a difficult experience for those who were the victims and the survivors and their families. It's a difficult experience for other priests to have all this out there again. Difficult experience for me and for many other people. So it wasn't a fun thing to do. It wasn't a, an enjoyable thing to do. But I felt for the sake of transparency and accountability, we had an obligation to do so. And just real uh, briefly on this topic to wrap it up. It looks like looking at the list this morning since July 1st when you released it, one name has been added. Um, have any names been removed? Not that I know of. And again, I'm not dealing with that every single day. I don't think any names have been re removed. I think the list is what the list has been with that one additional name that was added. But as we said when it was published, if we get new information of more credible allegations, um, we will certainly add those and amend the list. Other thing to emphasize again, and we said this a number of times, having a name on the list doesn't prove guilt or innocence. It simply says, as a statement of fact, that we've received allegations that we have deemed to be credible. So it doesn't prove anything beyond that. Simply that we received allegations that we think were credible. Um, we have to go to a break pretty soon, but I'm going to push it probably one minute just for a final question here. St. Paul's Church was once again um, target of, of vandals throwing rocks through the stained glass windows there. Uh, the latest at the end of November. I don't know if it's happened again since and it didn't make headlines, but look, the federal government um, is sometimes tapped to investigate potential hate crimes. Do you know if that's happened here? I have no information that that's happened here. And again, it's a terrible thing for St. Paul's Church. It's a beautiful church, a great parish. We have no idea who did it or why they did it. It would be speculation to say it was a hate crime or not a hate crime or just a a random act of vandalism. It's happened twice that I'm aware of. Right, and okay. I was there for Mass the Sunday after it happened, second time, um, just to offer some uh, presence and some prayerful support to the parish. Um, so we have no idea who did it or, or why it happened. Okay, no, you haven't uh, heard from the U.S. Attorney's Office? No, on this like that. Okay, yeah. our guest this week is Bishop Thomas Tobin. Our conversation continues. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. To my left, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is Bishop Thomas Tobin. Ted? Bishop, uh, as Tim mentioned in the open, you published statistics before your ad limina visit to Rome. And, and even knowing how much the religious landscape has changed, they were somewhat startling. Since 2000, mass attendance in the Providence Diocese is down 57%. Uh, the number of parishioners recorded by the parishes is down nearly 40%. Look, you've been the bishop for most of that period. Do you accept any share of the the blame or the for the drop off in Catholic practice in Rhode Island this century? Well, um, a couple of things. First of all, keep in mind those broad numbers, the number of registered Catholics, the number of people attending Mass on Sundays, they're very broad numbers and they're very soft numbers. We really don't know how many Catholics there are in the state. It depends how you define that. We really don't know how many uh, Catholics attend Mass every Sunday. The sacramental numbers are, are more um, documentable because they're registered in books when Marriages, people are baptized. Marriages, baptisms, yeah. Exactly. So there are better numbers. However, um, there's no question there's been a drop-off in, in registration. Our parishes and people attending sa uh, Sunday Mass attendance, uh, I suppose I share responsibility for that is in some ways like everybody else does. And keep in mind, as I've tried to say this a hundred times, this is not at all unique to Rhode Island or to the Diocese of Providence. It's happening throughout New England. It's happening throughout the Midwest. It's happening in the Mid-Atlantic states. Um, 
where and it's happening in, in Canada and in Western Europe where the, the numbers are the decrease the numbers are far uh, more dire than they are here so I don't think I can be a, a, uh, assessed with any personal blame for what's happening in the church around the world and the Western Western world for sure but we're part of that general uh, cultural generational change and it's not just affecting the Catholic Church it's affecting religious communities in general and people are not affiliating with religious communities the way they used to so it's affecting us certainly it's affecting our parishes our schools our organizations our enrollment and so forth um, but it's not at all unique to Rhode Island so do we all share some some blame in that, of course, it's a community problem. But is it unique to Rhode Island? Not at all. You know, there'll be people watching today, Catholics, maybe lapsed <coughs> Catholics ahead of Christmas. Maybe their family was hurt by the church. Maybe they were disgusted by the abuse crisis. You know, what's your pitch to that person today? Why should they go back to Mass? Why should they go to a service when they have clearly fallen off or, or something happened that led them to break away? Sure, no, that's a great point for reflection. And, and we certainly understand if somebody's been hurt by the church, why they would drop away from the church or stop going to Mass. From a human point of view, that's very, very understandable. Why would they come back? Because of what the Mass offers. It's the presence of God, it's the body and blood of Jesus, it's the proclamation of God's word, the support of the community. There are so many wonderful things that to be gained by being involved in their parish, by being involved in the church, by attending Sunday Mass. They should be there. And if they've been hurt in some way, all we can do is apologize and very sincerely apologize and regret what's happened in the past, but also to move on in the future. Uh, Catholics have an obligation to go to Mass on Sundays, and we don't talk about that very often. Not just those involved who have been hurt in some way, but every Catholic has an obligation to attend Mass on Sundays. We, when we go to Mass on Sunday, we're not doing God a favor. We go to Mass because it's a divine obligation. And to be with the community, to hear the Word of God proclaimed, to receive the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. And if we stay away from that, we're only harming ourselves. So. If someone's been harmed by the church, I would hope that um, they would give us a second chance and come back and to receive the, the inspiration and the forgiveness and the healing and the renewal that the Eucharist, especially in the Word of God, can give them. Bishop, politics. <clears throat> in a tweet, uh, you referred to the impeachment process of President Donald Trump as, quote, a political sideshow. Does that mean you oppose impeachment? No, as I said in a, in a second tweet too, I you know, and putting out that first tweet, I wasn't taking sides at all whether or not he should or should not be impeached or, or found guilty. And, and saying that it was a sideshow or a circus, I'm certainly not the first one or the only one to say that. It's just, I guess, it bothered me at that point. And, and you guys would know better than than I do. Um, it's just become so very, very partisan. I think the outcome in the House of Representatives was predictable because it's run by the Democrats. And I think the outcome in the Senate will be predictable because it's run by the Republicans. So, and there's so much um, uh, division, so much name calling going back and forth. In some ways, it's become a very juvenile exercise of people throwing stones and, and calling people names and uh, insulting one another. Um, and again, I, you know, I suppose um, my own personal opinions on what, what they should do with the, the president. Uh, and and uh, just a reminder, too, that, um, as I said uh, publicly before, I didn't vote for President Trump mm -hmm. for a couple reasons. And I probably would not vote for him again, although I have to see the alternatives, I suppose. Um, so I'm not necessarily 100% in the president uh, 
uh, Trump camp. But just the process has been so divisive for our country and so predictable and so partisan. It's it's been uh, but by dis it's been discouraging by you weighing in on social media, which you've had sort of a rocky relationship with Twitter. It's I think it's safe to say. <laughs> safe to say. Um, do you perpetuate that division? You're the bishop mm -hmm. of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Providence. You obviously have a big podium here, and when you weigh in like that. Does it only add fuel to the fire? Well, when you say when you weigh in like that, what I said again weigh was, in at all. Period. Yeah, well, full stop. Right? I suppose the option would be for me not to use Twitter at all, or <laughs> which you which have you tried. Which I tried, and it might happen again sometime. <laughs> again, the, the involvement with Twitter is not a lifetime commitment necessarily. So if you like it, you use it. If you don't like it, you don't have to use it. So yeah. we'll see where that goes in the future. But no, I tried again and. Uh, I've used Twitter for, for religious purposes, for spiritual purposes, for personal greetings, for little human uh, stories and so forth, um, things about the Steelers, things about my dog. So I use Twitter for lots of things, but certainly in this particular case, what I put out there was not partisan at all. I was talking about the process, which I and many, many other people have found to be very um, disconcerting. We are taping Friday morning uh, overnight. <laughs> there was a lot of news about an editorial in the magazine Christianity Today, which is an evangelical publication, which, which was founded by Billy Graham and actually <coughs> called for the president's impeachment, which took a lot of people by surprise because he has such strong support. I was just curious if you read the editorial and if you had any thought on... I, I did not read the editorial. I saw the stories yeah. about, the, about the article, but I have not read it at all. Another question off your Twitter feed, and uh, one in your, your day job, um, <laughs> which is, you tweeted the other day, uh, I think, a study about uh, how long sermons are in different churches and stuff. And, you know, talk about something that gets Catholics riled up. You know, if a homily, <coughs> if they think the homily's too long, if they think the homily's bad, if they're, if they're not into it. How long do you think a good homily is? How long, what do you recommend <laughs> to your priests? <laughs> well, it, it depends, of course, on the, on the situation, the circumstances. Generally speaking, in the Catholic tradition, homilies are fairly brief. Now, what does that mean? Generally speaking, they're somewhere between 10, 12, 15 minutes. Keep in mind in the Catholic tradition, the homily, the sermon is only the first part, only one part of the liturgy. Very important part, and it should be well prepared and as engaging and effective as possible. But then we move on to the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the Eucharistic prayer, the distribution of Holy Communion. That's part of every Mass, which is really the focus of, of our liturgy, is the celebration of the Mass and the Eucharist, distribution of the body and blood of Christ. So the homily is an important part, but it's not the only part. I think in many uh, Protestant traditions, the, the homily, the sermon, is the main part of their worship service. So understandably, if they're going to be in church for an hour, um, their sermons might be 30 or 35 or 45 minutes. Typically in the Catholic Church, uh, I would say 10 to 12 to 15 minutes is, um, is optimal. The but it depends so much on who the preacher is and, and what's being said. Um, the diocese <laughs> launched a big $50 million capital campaign uh, about two years ago. It looked like you're going to hit that mark? Yep. We're very, very close to the mark as we sit here today. Um, I think by the time we get to the end of this calendar year, we'll be at or above $50 million. We're at 49.1 right now, I think, the last printed uh, information I saw. Uh, we have a few more parishes to be involved in the capital campaign. We have some major gifts still out there coming in we're aware of. So yeah, we're going to hit the 50 million plus, which is a wonderful, 
wonderful tribute to the people of this size. Where is the largest expenses once you have the money? Uh, you know, what are the biggest things that need to be paid for? Well, uh, almost all that money is being endowed. A portion of it, four to five million dollars, I believe, is being set aside for renovations of our cathedral maintenance. We've got some structural issues there, so that money will be in and out to take care of that. Everything else is being endowed for seminary and education, priest retirement, Catholic schools, Catholic charities. So all of that's going to be endowed and will pay benefits for the diocese for many, many years to come. Go ahead. You uh, you will reach the mandatory retirement age of 75. This was my question. I think it's 20, <laughs> 20, 20, You seem pretty anxious to talk yeah, about my retirement. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> 20, uh, we leave it in God's hands. 2023, <laughs> I think, right? Do you expect still to be the, to lead the Providence Diocese yeah, well, through that you, year? As you said, we'll sort of leave it in God's hands. Um, I've been saying to myself, I will retire right after Tom Brady retires. <laughs> Now, we don't know. Could be this year. <laughs> yeah, watch out. Well, what we say by right after is very flexible. Um, <laughs> let's face it, we're both uh, reaching the end of the line, I suppose. No, um, it's in God's hands, but, but the policy of the church is that when a bishop turns 75, which will happen for me in 2023, every bishop has to submit his retirement. It may or may not be accepted right away. Um, but that's in the Pope's hands at that point. Um, some there are some mornings I wake up I'd like to retire tomorrow <laughs> other days I wake up and I think I could go for another 10 years but um, no at the age of 75 we have to submit a letter and then it will be in the Pope's hands Bishop Thomas Tobin <clears throat> Merry Christmas to you Merry Christmas to you and, and to all of your viewers God hey, bless you and thank you again for coming on every year we hope to see you again here next year and to our viewers Merry Christmas and a happy holidays to you Ted and I will see you in the new year. Thank you again for watching and we'll see you on Newsmakers in 2020.